0: This is the Author Archive podcast. And this episode really is a time capsule. It was recorded in 2002 and it's a conversation I had with the thinker and campaigner Tariq Ali. And he'd written a book called The Clash of Fundamentalisms, which is about the clash of fundamental Christianity, fundamental Islam, and fundamental capitalism. And we sat in a hotel in London to talk about his book. And at the time, 9-11 was still the biggest story around. So I started by asking him, when he watched what was happening, and it was Available for all to see on television. That September, what was his initial thought?
1: Mine was, I couldn't believe that this was actually taking place. And it, it took about an hour or two for it to sink in that it had actually happened. And I was talking some weeks after that to the New York Times correspondent in Europe. And I asked him, what did you think? And he said it sounds awful what I'm going to say, but I was just totally struck by the imagination of the act I said, well yes, he said it's, it is incredibly imaginative, horrific barbaric, but very imaginative way of hitting the United States. I said, yeah, that's true as well, but my first reaction was what? I mean, they've actually pierced the defences of the Pentagon and it was, it was incredible and then I immediately began to think someone is going to suffer for this it's not going to be the guys who carried it out because they've killed themselves but someone somewhere is going to be hit and that's exactly what happened a few weeks later
0: Can you, have you got any handle at all on how you persuade somebody to kill themselves like that, because it seemed to me that you've got to engender almost a euphoria in somebody else to persuade them to do that. Because you look at these guys and they weren't stupid, they weren't kind of junkies from bad homes, they weren't like that, so can you understand?
1: It's something I personally find very difficult to understand, how anyone can persuade someone to sacrifice their lives. The level of spiritual, political, religious, fanatical intensity must be so great that you put everything else out of your mind. And I think you have to be believe in something irrational in my opinion to be able to do that no rational person could do it so it's true that these young men who carried it out were middle-class professionals educated at universities and angered by what was going on in that world and stoked up by the people who ordered the attack and said look you will die but you will be a martyr for the rest of your life now Curiously enough, the Palestinians who become suicide bombers in in Palestine, I understand much more because their conditions are so awful, they're so desperate, they're occupied that they say, well, you know, living is almost as bad as death, so let's do it for the cause and maybe one day we'll be free. I don't approve of it, but I can understand it more. But this action, where you hijack a plane, backed with petrol and hit the Pentagon and the Twin Towers in New York I think you have to believe that you'll, you, you you will be rewarded in the afterlife or something like that in order to push it through and I, I was thinking about this a lot when I was writing the book and I, I said could an atheist, someone like myself who doesn't believe in supreme beings or uh, life in heaven or in hell ever do that. And I couldn't think of any examples in history. I was trying to look back. It's true that there were in the 19th and 20th century anarchists. But they carried out individual acts. Kill the Tsar, kill the Kaiser, kill a politician, kill one person. And they didn't do it thinking they'd be killed. Some were caught and killed. But you know, that's a risk you take. But this is something very special. And it almost beggars the imagination.
0: But you, you talk of yourself as being uh, an atheist and you talked before about the American fundamentalist, capitalist belief. That is a fundamentalist
1: view that atheists can subscribe to, isn't it? That is. It is and accept though it is quite, you know, uh, uh, uh entertaining, that George Bush is a born-again Christian, that John Ashcroft, his Attorney General, is a born-again Christian who actually, in uh, in his Washington office, has had the Goddess of uh, Justice covered because he didn't want to see her breasts. So, these are the people who are running the States. And then a very interesting thing happened, which I write about in the book, that the week after September the 11th, You had this big event in the baseball stadium, paying homage to the people who had died. Uh, And standing next to President Bush was the Reverend Billy Graham. And he said, Mr. President, everyone, I have been deluged with letters and emails and phone calls saying, how did God let them hit America? There's a big pause and he said, I couldn't answer the question. So, there is in American politics today, Republican politics, a very strong streak of Christian fundamentalism. But basically, you're right, they don't have to be. I mean, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson wasn't a religious guy when he knocked the hell out of Vietnam. Clinton wasn't uh, deeply religious. It's an imperial fundamentalism, but they don't. They do it to protect, preserve their political, economic interests, and they can destroy a country, they can throw nuclear bombs on Japan, and there's no problem. It's, uh, if you say to them, but you know, that's fundamentalism, and they say, Guy, that's US patriotism. I said the same thing, because I've been debating journalists in the States. What, what I find disquieting
0: is this simplistic analysis that you're with us or you're without us. Yeah. You are good or you are bad and that distresses me because the minute that you have the, the arrogance to say they are bad and I am good, it gives you rights, it, it, it gives you almost obligations. It seems that we are, I mean, I, I feel
1: pessimistic, I feel scared, how do you feel? I think the world today has suddenly become more dangerous than it ever was in in the 20th century. I feel that that there in the during the Cold War days the conflict but was between states which were ordered states, whatever you might mm. think of them. I mean, you know what the United States did to Latin America, the attempts they made to kill Castro, uh, what they did in Vietnam, what they did in Southern Africa, the people, what they did to Chile in particular. You never never had Chileans who were subjected to the military saying we're going to go and hit America. So in a strange way that civilization of socialism and communism which has now disappeared like Atlantis never reacted to the United States like these Muslim uh, fundamentalists who were created by the Americans themselves to go and fight the Cold War. So this blowback effect which they're witnessing is very dangerous and now you see what they say is we're going to wipe them out, dead or alive, kill them. Cowboy rhetoric. Oh, they're going to start bombing Iraq, well they might bomb Iraq, they might even destroy the country and replace the government, but what then? And I'm really worried that some people might want an even more vicious revenge and they bomb Iraq and people feel we can't do anything because people who carry out these acts you know it's a sign of weakness not strength there's nothing else we can do so let's just punish them as well and my fear is that someone A small group might buy nuclear weapons or plutonium from the Russian Mafia which has access to it and sells it all over the world, make their own nuclear device and say, this time you've bombed us again and we're going to hit you where it hurts and explode a nuclear device in the heart of America. What then? Who do you attack then? Do you then go and use nuclear weapons? So the only solution to all this is a political one. The Americans have to have a political solution.
0: But what does that do? I'm talking to you about the clash of fundamentalisms, which, which uh, implies religion. I mean, it, as you say, there's this the growth of religious right in America, the growth of, it's a kind of religious right as well, isn't it? Yeah. Muslim religious right. Yeah. And it's... It's, it doesn't respond to intellectual argument. It, doesn't, it gives itself points for not being an intellectual, an intellectually rigorous. The more bizarre thing you can believe, the more points you get. So how do you corrode that? How do you erode that into reason? How
1: do you do it? Well, I think you, it's difficult. But I think the key thing is not to imagine that you can win over some of the hardcore fundamentalists. That you will never do on either side. What you can do is cut off the flow of recruits and you have then to ask why are young middle-class kids in Saudi Arabia and Egypt, the two countries where there's the biggest unrest, joining these people. There we have the answers. I mean, it's not a secret. And everyone, I was in Cairo last week, and everyone I spoke to said Palestine we see every day on our television screens Ariel Sharon's tanks and his bombers and his troops going and killing Palestinian civilians and the West does nothing. That This guy is a war criminal bigger than Saddam Hussein as far as we're concerned and he's dined and wined in the White House and in Britain treated like a normal leader. So what, what do you expect people to feel? So my answer is The Palestine-Israel question has to be solved. The West, which funds Israel, backs it, arms it, has to say, enough's enough, withdraw to the pre-67 borders and let the Palestinians live in peace. Once that's happened, if anyone attacks you, then we'll defend you. But... Let's have that as a starting point. In your analysis what is the engine that drives resistance to that?
0: Why can that not happen? Because sitting here in West London on a Sunday morning that seems
1: so reasonable. I know. Well I think the reason is that the United States are extremely worried. They, basically we have to understand that the world today is governed by one empire and that is the American Empire. I mean I'll give you a statistic there are 187 member states of the United Nations. In 100 of these countries there is a US military presence. So that is the extent of this empire. And this empire feels that Israel is essential to its security interests in the Middle East i.e. guarding the oil reserves and therefore they are prepared to tolerate any atrocities the Israelis do out because they feel Israel is crucial and if somehow it's weakened our oil interests will be affected and I think that's that's how they look at it that's a fundamentalist way of looking at it reason would dictate you put mega pressure on Israel to do a settlement with the Palestinians, and if they don't, you threaten them, as Bush Sr. once attempted to do, as Edward Heath, when he was prime minister, once attempted to do. You really push them, because unless that question is solved, there will be no peace in the Middle East or anywhere else. It, it goes too deep in the Arab psyche. I've, I've noticed this myself.
0: But where is that going to? Where is that going to start changing? Because um, on the paper, in the paper I read on the train coming here this morning, more
1: Jews dead, more Palestinians dead. It, the engine continues. <coughs> the, How is that <coughs> going to be cut? I think what is beginning to happen within Israel itself is very interesting. Over the last four weeks, two hundred Israeli soldiers, reservists, have come out in public and said. We will defend our country if attacked, but we are not prepared to go and fight beyond the 67 frontiers of Israel. We will not be part of oppressing the Palestinians anymore. This has created mayhem in Israel because this is the first sign of a crack inside the Israeli defence force, their military. And I think this is the most heartening and encouraging thing which has come out. It's not being played up here, but it's very big news in Israel and it's it's escalating and the Palestinians say the only reason this is happening is because we've upped the pressure. So hopefully some solution will come out and it's also good to see that Ariel Sharon's ratings are now going down because people thought that the Big Fist would sort it out and they are now finding that all the Big Fist does is create mayhem inside Israel where Israelis are dying, not just Palestinians.
0: Well that didn't work out so well. Things change. This is Tariq Ali talking to me in 2002 and what started our conversation was his book The Clash of Fundamentalisms Crusades Jihads and Modernity and uh, that book say published in 2001 is still available and because it started talking about 9/11 I asked Tariq Ali How do you think in the future Osama bin Laden is going to be viewed?
1: It depends which part of the world you're in. What surprised me uh, after September the 11th was not so much the... response in the Arab world which was expected you know on the face of it people were upset that civilians had died but everyone you spoke not everyone but large numbers of people you spoke to privately they said we're glad they were hit they had it coming and uh, we're proud that Osama did it That was one response. Another response was not wanting to believe that this could be the work of Muslims. And the number of Muslims who stopped me in the streets of London and Manchester, because they'd seen me talking about it and heard me on radio and television, they said, can we ask you a question? I said, yeah. Tariq, do you really believe that Muslims are intelligent enough to do this? Just think of the layers underneath that question. It couldn't be us, we're not that bright. I said, I'm afraid it is the work of Muslims. Don't. They said, are you sure? I said, who else could it be? It could be Mossad, the Israeli secret service, to discredit us. I said, it's wishful thinking. And it can't be the American side that They don't kill their own people on this level to, to, to damage you. It has been done by you. So these two different reactions sum it up. But what, what I was going to say was, leave the world of Islam. Look at what happened in Latin America. There were celebrations in several Latin American countries. In Brazil, there was a black jazz pianist performing uh, the week after. So he first started by saying, I want a minute's silence in honour of those who are dead. And people stood up. Everyone did this, about three, four thousand young Brazilian kids. Then he said, I'm going to start this evening's recital by starting by playing God Save America. At this point, the whole hall erupted with chants of Osama and the concert never took place. In Bolivia people celebrated on the streets, in Nicaragua people were hugging each other silently and smiling. This was uh, in China the New Yorker reported all the vox pops they did on the streets in China the day after they said we are happy you were hit. You know, the way Chinese can say something like that totally calmly. And this poor New Yorker, they said, you're happy 3,000 people died? And they said, you bombed our embassy in Belgrade during the Balkan War. No one was too upset. Chinese people had died. And the guy said, but six Chinese died in Belgrade and thousands in New York. They said, for us, each Chinese life is worth the same. So that was the reaction outside the Muslim world. And I think Western politicians really have to understand that and begin to grapple with it.
0: And on the cover of your book, an interesting photograph of George Bush. Is he good or bad news? I'm falling into my own trap. No, he's, he's neither. But what's your, what's your take?
1: Well, I think George Bush is a very naive, uh, not very bright, politician who didn't even manage to win the majority vote, popular vote, in his own country and alas September the 11th has elevated him as the leader of the free world fighting terror but I think this is not going to uh, last uh, very long and I think partially I mean he's a dangerous figure but he's also partially a comical figure as 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 I see him, and the way, reason we put the beard on him is to stress the fundamentalism that this is the fundamentalism which is really dangerous and which has been wrecking the world for a long time and is this ever going to stop who's the book for The book is written for anyone who wants to grapple with what's happened. It offers a secular history of Islam. So if people say, what is this religion about? I attempt to give a history, not from a divine religious point of view, but basically what Islam was, how it arose, how it conquered large parts of the world, what happened to it, in quite a sympathetic way but without being religious. It's also a history of the birth of American imperialism how it grew, how it traveled, what it did, so it's designed for Muslims, for non-Muslims, for anyone who wants to think that I'm neither on the side of George Bush but I'm nor am I on the side of Islamic fundamentalism and I think there are millions of us around who don't support either side. When you finished writing
0: it, um, did you understand a little more? Were you a little more secure in the answers
1: or did it just produce more questions? It produced a lot of questions for me as we are writing this book, but I also was pretty confident that the solution to this problem, a real, you know, if you really want to restrict and isolate groups of terrorists, you have to undertake big initiatives and political solutions in that part of the world. Politics is the way uh, forward, Uh, not violence on either side, either state terror and state violence deployed by the United States and Israel, or by small groups of people going and blowing up bits of America. I don't think either of these is going to reach uh, a a solution. Talking, uh, trying to achieve solutions and then making sure that what's been agreed is pushed through, that's the way forward.
0: The book is called The Clash of Fundamentalisms. It's published by Verso, the latest from Tariq Ali. Tariq, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. That's Tariq Ali talking to me in 2002. Mm-hmm.